Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. Please also consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to our next topic. Congratulate you again on your, uh, I guess, what do they call it, the fastest time ever recorded. I mean, world record, whatever you want to call it, the fastest trail one that's ever been done by a human being that's been known. I mean, maybe there was some guy in prehistoric times that ran faster. We don't know that. But anyway, since modern record keeping has been done, no one has ever run 100 miles on a trail faster than you just did. And you did that at the Tunnel Hill 100-mile race uh, just, what, last month, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and your time was 12.08.36, I believe. Correct mm-hmm. me if I'm wrong. And that exceeded the world record, which was probably, I think, around 12.44. And I don't remember the seconds on that. But you, you clearly beat it by, you know, something like 26 minutes, 25, 26 minutes, which is a – you know, a huge improvement on, on an existing uh, world's best. And so that's just tremendous. And so I know a lot of listeners out here that, that are interested in performance or even the ones that are specific to running and, and even more, more specific to ultra-endurance running will be wanted to know what you did uh, to, prepare, to prepare for it, how you, how you manage race day, how you're managing recovery and, and, and that sort of stuff. So let's, let me just go into, first of all, um, you know, did this surprise you that you were able to do this? Was this a surprise or, or did you know that you were probably going to do something like this, you know, going into the race? Yeah. You know, I think, uh, you know, one, one of the questions I get is like people kind of assume I was going there actively chasing the hundred mile trail record. Um, and that really wasn't my, my main priority. I knew that that record was there and I knew it was achievable on that course based on some times that that course has produced in the past. Um, and based on kind of my own experience running flat hundred milers. Uh, but my main kind of, I guess, objective more or less was to try to do a flat, fast hundred miler that wasn't on a track. <laughs> All the flat, fast hundred milers I've done to date besides Tunnel Hill have been on a 400 meter rubber track. Um, so I've been curious enough with kind of that, uh, the flatter, faster courses that I wanted to do a hundred miler you know, on something that didn't have the, the frequent turning, something that was just a little more um, varied, I guess. Uh, and Tunnel Hill seemed to be one that kind of fit that bill. It's the, the course is kind of set up on this thing they call rails to trails, where it was an old railroad bed, and they basically took up took out all the railroad ties and stuff, and and laid crushed limestone. So it's kind of like a, a gravelly type path with really gradual grades up and down. Uh, so my goal there was basically just to go see how fast I could do that in. And, you know, I've run 1140 as my fastest hundred miler in the past. Uh, um, the, the slowest fast hundred miler when it was just goal being specifically the hundred mile distance was 1208 that I did on an indoor track up in Alaska back in 2014. So I kind of, you know, thought I was probably looking at, um, somewhere like I wasn't ruling out the pot- the potential of running a PR, which would be under 1140. Um, but I also wasn't ruling out the course being a little more difficult than I, than I imagined and in, in running slower than that as well. Uh, so, but I guess my, my thought was I would probably be uh, given a good performance being that low 12 hour range, um, which is ultimately what it ended up being. And, you know, I, I, I kind of started the race with uh, the mindset that, I shouldn't rule out a potential PR. So I, I took out what, I, what on paper, I guess, would look like a fairly aggressive start. Um, I came through the marathon, I think, in around somewhere around 2.55, uh, which has put me at world record pace, outright 100-mile world record pace. And the way the course is kind of set up is you do have a start-finish line in a central location, and then you do an out-and-back of just over 26 and a half miles, and then you do another out-and-back of right around 23 and a half miles. Uh, so it's basically a straight line in both directions from the start finish. And you do both those out and backs twice. Uh, the first out and back is a little more gradual or flat. Um, the second one has, uh, albeit relative to most trails, a very, very gradual, like not very steep climb, but in terms of 
you know, flat hundred milers, which, you know, for me, I've been zero inches of elevation gain and loss on a track. You know, it was enough where I kind of started thinking, all right, coming back up this the second time is going to be a, a challenge to do at PR pace. Um, so as I came back down that to the start finish line again, which is the halfway mark at that point, I had done each out and back once and I had to do them both again. I was at that point, I was like, okay, I think I can run a really fast time here. At that point, I was still thinking sub 12 hours was a really good possibility. Um, but I was also thinking, you know, the likelihood of a, of a big PR or even a PR was going to be pretty difficult given that second out and back was going to come, come up at around mile 78 and that little climb was going to be around mile 80 and just past experience with, with hundred miles. I knew that was going to be a tough part to really keep throttling down on. Um, so I, at that point I just kind of, you know, with hundred milers, the thing I always say is it's like the biggest mistake you can make in a hundred miler is laying out a plan and expecting everything to happen according to that plan. Or, uh, when something according to your plan doesn't happen, uh, you start fixating on that and let things kind of spiral out of control as opposed to looking forward and just kind of trying to regain momentum or gain momentum within the context of what you've put yourself into. Uh, so that was my mindset there. It's like, I wanted to kind of keep momentum and keep, uh, you know, moving at, at a, a pace I felt was tolerable for the remainder of it. Um, and you know, that got me, got me to the finish line, uh, just after dark and 12 hours and eight minutes. So, uh, I thought I was happy with it. I thought that, uh, um, my training was pretty good for it and it put me in a good position to run a fast time. Zach, let me ask you, what was your plan going in as far as splits? I mean, do you, do you typically negative split? Do you, do you try to maintain the same pace throughout or what? I mean, when, you know, you say I'm going to run the first 10 miles at this miles, you know, this, this, this many minutes per mile. What was your, what, you know, if you had to put it in paper before you did it, what was, what was your planned execution and then compare that to the actual execution? Yeah. Uh, I've positive split almost every hundred miler I've ever done. And, uh, part of that I think is just because you get tired. Yeah. Yeah. With, well, with a hundred miles, especially like when you're in these more or less, uh, more mundane environments where it's not like this huge, like everything's changing all the time. Like you're going to get on a point to point trail through the mountains or something like that. Um, it's just, it's a wear and tear on your mind. So like my thought is always like at no point during this race, am I going to be running a pace that is fast relative to what I could do for a shorter distance. So from a physiological standpoint, um, I, I think like that's not the battle that I need to really, really focus on. The battle I need to focus on is kind of the mental side of things. So when, uh, when I think of the way like you feel and the way you process things mentally throughout the course of a full day of running is, you know, that first third of a hundred mile is going to go by really quick in your mind. Um, so I don't want to go artificially slow during that in, in an attempt to kind of even or negative split or attempt to, um, I'm not saying that that's not necessarily a, a valid approach to take. I think it probably is heavily reliant on your mindset and some guys, their mindset might be um, I'm going to get momentum going and I'm going to be in a very positive state at mile 80. If I'm hitting negative splits along the way or even splits along the way. And in which case I would say you take that strategy. I think a lot of times the strategy for a hundred miles is, is dependent upon putting yourself in the best mental position um, when you get to mile 80. Um, and for me, it seems to be that like, I feel better about the approach kind of getting out maybe a little ahead of the pace I'm trying to target or hoping to target. And then, uh, as long as I don't feel like I'm pressing where, where I'm running faster than I think I can tolerate, uh, I, I kind of just roll with it at that point. So for me, it's like with hundred milers, the, the kind of split I focused on a lot of times is like a 652 to 653 mile pace. Cause that happens to be world record pace. Um, and so more often than not in these hundred milers, I'll get out like a little bit faster than that. And then, um, depending on the, on the race and the way the thing, uh, things play out, I just, I slow down a little bit as the miles get, get longer. Um, and the day kind of wears down on you a bit. Uh, but yeah, you know, I've, I've always been more inclined to maybe a slight positive split for, for some of this longer stuff. 
I know you commented that the that the weather actually was not ideal. It was actually fairly cold when you started there. Talk about you know what what makes great weather and what makes a great environment for this type of performance and mm-hmm. uh, what what are things that you know you, you know you you'll know that some races you're gonna you may you may know with the competition or the field or the location or the you know the time of the year are gonna lead to a less lesser or a better performance. Can you talk a little bit about those factors that lead to top performances? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The weather was a little goofy. This one, um, this, this course typically is between 40 and 60 degrees on average, um, which I would describe as fairly optimal for a hundred miles. I think like 50 to like, if I could just like dial in a temperature and have it sit there all day long, I'd probably pick like 55 degrees, maybe 60, somewhere in that range. Cause that's cool enough where like, I don't feel like I'm putting myself in a position of overheating um, or having to like overhydrate uh, given the, the pace and intensity I'm going at. Uh, it was the wind chill was 14 degrees at the start of tunnel Hill though. So it was like a little chillier than maybe I would have liked. Um, I was going quick enough where I didn't feel like it was like affecting me from a pace standpoint that much, but I did notice like when I first opened a water bottle for the first time that like my hands were like quite non-functioning <laughs> more or less. So I was like, you know, thankful my shoes didn't come untied or something like that, where I would have had to like bend over and try to really manipulate something small. Uh, you know, but it was, uh, yes, it was a little chillier. I, I don't, I don't know how much that affects or doesn't affect the performance. Uh, it was, it was cold enough where I noticed it. So um, the fact that it was on my mind probably means it was a variable of some degree. Uh, but yeah, ideally I think like, uh, my experience has always been like just under room temperature is, is pretty solid for, for the intensity I'm going for at a, at a hundred miler. So, you know, at some point, well, well let me ask you, at what point did you know you were going to break, break the, the world record on this? At, at what point in the race did you know that, I mean, there's, you know, unless some tragedy befalls you. I mean, you know, there's probably a point 50 miles, 70 miles in where, you know, it's just, just don't do anything stupid and you, and you got it. Yeah. Yeah. For the trail world record side of things. Um, I was confident barring an extreme, like you said, like, you know, something weird happens, like, you know, you pass out at an aid station or, you know, something really crazy prevents you from, you know, finishing the event. Um, I was, basically a hundred percent confident that I was going to break that record. Uh, I've done enough training blocks now for a hundred milers on, on flat terrain that I, I kind of know what best and worst case scenarios are going to look like, or at least I have a window and in not running under the, the 1244 was, uh, was not something I saw as, as a potential if, if things didn't go off the rails like significantly like an injury or something like that, that was probably the biggest thing that could have potentially happened. I mean, hundred miles is a hundred miles, no matter how you skin it. So, uh, it's a long time to be out there and, and things happen sometimes. So there's always the potential of not getting to the finish line or, you know, hurting something to the degree where you have to slow down significantly. Um, but I knew like barring any of those type of scenarios that, uh, based on how training, the training built up went that there was no other reason that would really prevent me. Um, I, I guess the other thing that can sometimes flare up for folks in longer runs, like hundred miles is like a digestive issue. Uh, you know, if you find yourself stopping to use the bathroom dozen times or, you know, puking up your fuel source, you know, half a dozen to a dozen times that can really put the brakes on how much moving time you actually have, which could be a potential downfall. But I've really had the, the only time I've ever had an experience like that was in a hundred miler in the past where, um, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure I had food poisoning the day before. Um, and I ended up stopping like seven, I think I counted, I think it was 17 times during that event. And that one, I was on an indoor track and I still ran 1208. So to me, it was like, it, there wasn't a whole lot of risk of that happening, barring an extreme. Now for a word from our sponsors. Hey folks, thank you for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Uh, we are very excited to have ButcherBox sponsoring the show. Sean, why don't you tell us about some of your experiences? Yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, basically mostly just going with their custom boxes. I've been going with uh, ribeyes and uh, New York strip steaks. They're all 
uh, grass-finished, antibiotic-free, hormone-free. They're actually pretty decently marbled for a grass-finished product. I've been enjoying it. Lately, I've been throwing it on the on the uh, in the sous vide and then reverse searing or then searing it up in a cast iron pan. That's been pretty darn tasty. I've enjoyed it. Uh, the consistency I found on pretty much every single steak has been very high, very good and very high. Uh, flavor's been good, and I really enjoyed it. I think uh, you know, looking around at some of the other competitors and some of the other grass finished products that you might get in the store. This is actually a fair bit more economical, and so I think it's a, it's a good value, good quality, and in and, and a very uh, you know enjoyable, flavorful uh, way to get your steaks. Awesome, thanks, Sean. Remember to get your discount and free bacon. Type in promo code HPO at the checkout. Now back to the show. What? No, let's talk a little bit about. I guess your. Well, let's just talk about your training strategy, and then we can talk maybe about the nutrition strategy and stuff like that. Uh, both prior and during and after the race. So let, 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 how long did you train for this race? And, and kind of can you walk us through maybe the periodization that you might have done through that, uh, both from a, from a training, from a distance, from a, you know, any strength training you might have done, uh, and, then, and then nutrition strategy leading up to the race? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. Uh, I guess once I started, I try to break in like preparing for these things into two categories. One category is like it's a lifelong exposure when you have like endurance and stuff, it's like that you have a good race and it's easy to look at like the eight week build up to the race itself and kind of forget about the years and years and years of just, um, time in the sport that kind of helps move things forward. Um, but that's, I think that's kind of a, a no brainer, um, when you really think about it. So when talking about it, it's usually easier to talk about what the specific build up to this event was and kind of how that went. And I guess I started focusing on it, uh, in early to mid July. Um, I kind of had my year broken down into two categories. The first half of the year was going to be um, more trail oriented, uh, more, I guess, more climbing and descending oriented, I should say. Uh, and the second half of the year was going to be more flat hundred or flat ultra marathon based. Uh, so come mid July, I started kind of getting back into my build up to training. Uh, and the big difference there was I just, I basically came off the, the, the hilly trails and went on to flat trails and flat road and that sort of thing to do the majority of my work. And um, the way I, I, I start a buildup when I have enough time, uh, which I very much did for this race, is I'll do, uh, I'll do a few weeks. And it'll vary depending on where my fitness is at at the time. Uh, but I'll do like kind of like a base building phase where I'll build up um, what I like to call like a strong aerobic base. And I kind of use a, a heart rate metric to guide that uh i try to get my uh my heart rate of like around 150 to 155 to a point where my pace is right around a six minute mile at that intensity and once i get myself to that i usually notice a bit of a plateau at that i don't see my pace dropping at that heart rate significantly after that um so to me that means i've got the aerobic base in place to start putting some more work on top of it or some different work on top of it. Um, the, the, the big view idea, I think, with, with any endurance event is you do want race-specific type workouts closer to the race. Um, it's just a specificity of training mindset. So the unique thing about 100 miles versus a more traditional endurance event is race-specific stuff is oftentimes slower than what you might do on even an easy run in training. Whereas if you're doing like a 5K or a 10K, race pace is significantly faster than just like kind of a, a long run pace or an easy recovery run pace. Um, so usually what I'll do then is I'll do some like shorter interval stuff earlier in the training block after I have that kind of base set. Uh, and that can be anything from like 60 second intervals to like three minute, like more VO2 max type interval sessions. Um, and I'll run that system anywhere between kind of four to eight weeks, depending on how much time I have, or depending on how I feel that that system is being addressed. Uh, but ultimately I want to give myself, you know, anywhere from six to eight weeks leading into kind of the, a taper or like maybe a week or two out from the race where I'm really just building, like returning to that more aerobic based building phase again, cause that's gonna be more specific to the race itself. And that tends to be a lot more kind of that heart rate based training again, uh, maybe some longer interval sessions where they're like 10 to 12 minutes in duration as opposed to 60 seconds or three minutes um, or even longer like tempo runs where you're like 30 to upwards to 60 minutes 
then you just, you kind of, you run a, a bit faster than, than you're just kind of cruising pace, but, uh, you know, do it for a longer period of time. And, and I like to jump in races and stuff to kind of fitness check along the way. And I don't know if that's just, um, like, uh, echoes of prior track and field and cross country, like days in college where it's just kind of fun to get to those events. And, uh, so I did do a kind of fitness check four weeks out, we went to the Des Moines half marathon and, uh, I didn't taper for it at all. I think I ran over a hundred miles that week still. So I was just going to use that half marathon as a way to just see like, how was my overall fitness as a runner at right now? Um, and it went quite well. My, my goal there was kind of like, I thought best case scenario, I'd run about a 70 minute half marathon, you know, worst case scenario and still getting a good workout in, I'd probably be 73 to 74 minutes. And I ended up running just a shade over 70 minutes. So I kind of hit that, that high end target of right around a 520 pace per mile. Um, so I knew I was really aerobically fit, uh, after that. And then I, at that point, I just had four weeks before the race. So I knew it was more of a matter of just doing just enough to maintain that fitness and not so much that I kind of overreach and find myself more or less fatigued come race day. Zach, talk a little bit about any, do you do any strength training in this, in this build up block? And how do you see that as, as relevant to what you do as an ultra, ultra distance guy? Yeah, I, I think um, strength training is incredibly valuable. I think strength training and mobility, especially when you start getting into these like really kind of mono mechanical type activities uh, where, where like you're asking your body to kind of become rigid in a certain position and then at the expense of that like inflexible in other directions. So what I notice is with a lot of these like kind of flat training blocks is I'm spending enough time kind of like doing that linear forward, um, like long session that like ankle mobility and sometimes hip type stuff are important to address. So I try to kind of spearhead that with a couple different things where, um, I'm doing a couple of mobility moves, uh, and then I'm also doing some strength work. So like the strength stuff I focus on, I don't go crazy in the gym. Um, but I do try to be very consistent. So I'll go to the gym probably two or three times a week and, uh, early in the training plan, I'll, I'll start doing some of the more like, uh, core lifts. I would consider like deadlifts, the squats and lunges, that sort of thing for the lower body. And then I do kind of a variety of different like resisted core movements as well. Uh, and then, you know, just some basic like pull-ups and push-ups and stuff like that, just to keep, uh, you know, a basic level of strength in the upper body. I, you know, I'm, I'm looking at some of that stuff from a couple lenses. You know, one is like, I don't want to add a lot of bulk in the upper body from a performance standpoint, because like it's, it can be dead weight, um, even if it's muscle, but like, uh, I don't want to be so weak that like I'm, you know, sacrificing a lot of health down the road or, you know, it's a hundred miles too. So I don't think it's quite as, it's quite the same as maybe, um, the, power weight ratio you'd see in like a marathon and you know i am carrying stuff it's a lot of these too so like i think there's uh some benefit to having you know some some strength at least at least strength that's not going to add a lot of extra bulk and i think like some basic movements like some pull-ups and push-ups and that sort of thing is probably enough to supplement that and not going to be this big hindrance on my power weight ratio um, so, you know, I'll do that stuff and it usually ends up being probably a 30 minute session in the gym, maybe three times a week or something like that. Yeah. I mean, strength to weight ratio is obviously going to be very important for any sport. And obviously, you know, it doesn't do you good to have, you know, 20 inch biceps when you're running <laughs> a distance. And so you have to figure out, you know, when we talk about strength, you know, certainly cross-sectional muscle area area is related to how strong we are, but there are some neuromuscular or neural endocrine adaptations and, and performance adaptations that allow you to get stronger without necessarily putting on too much bulk. And so I think there's a, obviously there's going to be a sweet spot for what you find. Let's go, let's talk a little bit about nutrition with regards to uh, things you've done recently over the years, how you think they've improved or not. I know we've had the discussion, you know, cause you, you coming from a low carb, even a ketogenic background have, have maybe added more protein into the diet recently. And does that have a benefit both with regard to your performance? I suspect it probably does with regard to getting stronger, which probably, you know, results in, in perhaps a better performance. Talk a little bit about your nutritional strategy as of late, how you also periodize that 
uh, in preparation for this race, you know, in the training period. And then let's go on, let's go on to the nutrition for the race day and, and then, and then talk about how you recover. Yeah. Um, I would say nutritionally, yeah, I'll, I'll preface it with saying like, I've been doing a high fat, low carb, um, approach, uh, for just over seven years now. So I do have a fairly significant background and I have had the opportunity to try out a few different kind of like ways to kind of implement that type of, uh, nutritional strategy. Um, the macronutrient side of things hasn't changed significantly since I started, you know, since I was doing it for a year or two, I've gravitated towards kind of a periodized nutritional approach where, um, if I want to look at it from a yearly standpoint, my carb intake is right around 10% when you add in kind of my lowest carb days and my highest carb days. Um, so within that framework, you might see, uh, like a recovery week or a completely off week after a, an event or a race where I'm dropping my carbs down to next to nothing. Um, the way I see it is like, if I'm just resting, maybe going for a walk or doing a light cycling to kind of get my legs moving or stretching and doing something like that. It's like, I don't really need to have any type of a high octane fuel source on board. Um, you know, basic day-to-day functions are very easy to do burning, burning primarily fat. So those are the times of the year where I really try to kind of address, uh, that fuel substrate. Um, and then, you know, as I build up into peak training, I'll get to like, like there's probably a handful of days a year. Um, and I usually try to say that because like, I think the, the thing that I find happening a lot is people will look at one phase of my training and say, this is what Zach does. And then the, the counter argument will be, they'll pick race day or my biggest workout of the year and say, no, that's how much carbs he's eating. And really, you know, it's, it's a, it's a lifestyle balance. And when I look at my lifestyle, it's significantly different on a recovery day versus a peak training day. So maybe a handful of days a year where I'll get up to 20 or even 30% carbohydrate those are almost always followed by kind of a deload week where like I'll go super low after that. And that's how I end up at that kind of average of around 10%. Um, it's a, uh, it, it's very strategic in the sense that like, if I'm doing a big like back to back day where maybe I'm going to do five to six hours worth of workout in like a Saturday, Sunday double um, you know, those are the days where my carbs are probably going to creep up the highest. Uh, and then that peak training, when I'm doing the highest amount of volume and intensity of my year, that's where they're going to be at their highest. Um, and like I said, those phases of the year are strenuous enough where I'm taking short recovery blocks in the midst of the whole thing. Uh, and those are kind of reserved for that low carb reset. Uh, the, from a macronutrient standpoint, then historically I've always kind of been somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, 60 to 70% fat, 20% protein, 15, 20% has usually been historically where I'm at. And then the remainder being carbs. And, and you know, that fluctuates based on where I'm at with training and uh, whether I'm doing a basic zero carb versus the highest point of training, like I mentioned before. The biggest change I've made in the last year or so has been kind of that protein side of things. In the past, I've always fairly regulated it where I'm kind of watching that almost like I am my carbohydrate intake and, not, and trying not to exceed certain amounts. So in the past, I've always been like, try to keep the protein between 100 to 150 grams um, with, with occasional days where I would be under 100 grams. Uh, this last year, I've really relaxed that. So I've let my protein kind of creep up, um, you know, not, not, not intentionally where I'm like going out and looking for like lean cuts of meat in order to jack my protein up to like three, 400 grams or anything like that. But, you know, when I build out my day, I usually build it out of, I, I build around, uh, you know, a fatty cut of meat. So like I usually start with like baseline of about two pounds of red meat or so. Um, and then supplement what I need from an energy standpoint on top of that. So that's gotten my protein up a bit higher, probably closer to the 20, consistently 20%, uh, on days where I'm not doing a lot of workout and focusing on recovery, maybe even higher, like 30%. Uh, so it's not something that, that I've paid as much like, like attention to in the sense that I'm really trying to keep it at a certain frame. Uh, and what I've noticed with that is when I do head into kind of some of those uh, 
more voluminous training portions of the year. Uh, when I'm, when I'm not hyper-focusing on keeping protein within a window, uh, I, I have had, a, I had a lot less days where I would do my higher end carb. So it seemed like I was able to more or less like keep carbs kind of closer to that like 20% or lower spot, even in those bigger days in this last like six month build up to tunnel Hill. Um, and I mean, I suspect that that's partly due to an increase in protein, my body, you know, converting some of that to muscle glycogen. Uh, but, um, you know, that might be something we need to get Stu Phillips back on the show to, <laughs> to talk about a bit. Um, it'd be interesting to see what he would say. Uh, you know, I base a lot of this stuff on how I feel like the metrics I'm really looking at. Uh, there's a few there's sleep. If I'm sleeping really well, I know I'm doing something right. Nutritionally. Um, if my energy levels throughout the course of the day are very consistent, no big peaks and valleys. Um, if my mood is consistent, um, and if, uh, my workouts are on pace to what I've done in the past or better. So if those things are all in line, then, you know, I'm not going to do a whole lot of like, um, questioning, uh, as to whether I'm doing something right or wrong or not. I'm just going to take those feedback loops that my body's giving me and, and, and use those to my advantage because, um, you know, ultimately I'm trying to feel good, perform good and, and, uh, live a happy, healthy life. So, uh, you know, all those things have been in, uh, in check, in my opinion, in the last six months leading the tunnel hill, which I think is in part, uh, you know, indicative of a good performance. Let's talk a little bit about, um, and we can come back to race day fueling and, and recovery fueling, but, uh, let's talk about, could you talk about recovery and sleep? What do you do to recover? Are you, do you do any of these other modalities, compression, uh, stuff after training, you know, the, the compression leggings, the uh, uh, cold immersion, or any of those things make it into your training? And if so, how effective have you found them to be? Or have you experimented with them and, you know, cast them aside as not being effective? Yeah, uh, I, I, I do some of them. I haven't put anyone in the routine consistently enough to really point to it as like, you know, this is a massive advantage or this is moving me along in a direction. Um, uh, there's some things I will do. Like, uh, if I'm doing some big, uh, training blocks and stuff like that, or if I'm going to do a two a day, a couple times a week, uh, I'll do like a warm bath where I'll soak in like Epsom salt. Um, and, uh, that seems to be beneficial in just that it kind of relaxes my leg muscles. Uh, you know, it's, I feel a little more loose then when I do go out for that second session of the day. Uh, so I, I try to use that kind of strategically throughout the training when I'm getting into some big training blocks, what exactly that's doing, whether that's, you know, helping from a muscular side of things, or if it's just like my body soaking in some extra magnesium or something, who knows. Um, but that's something I'll do just because I've noticed that it does seem to be beneficial in the, in the context of those high training, um, from the cold stuff, you know, I'll, I'll take an occasional cold shower or, this time of year in Phoenix, uh, the pool we have at our house is like super cold. So if I hop in that thing, it's like taking an ice bath almost. So I'll jump in that every once in a while just um, to kind of like expose myself to that. I think sometimes, I think temperature extremes in general are beneficial for humans. Like it, I don't think we're meant to just sit in room temperature all day long. So um, if I have an opportunity to expose myself to an extreme temperature um, for a reasonable amount of time, I'll, I'll take advantage of that. You know, heat kind of takes care of itself here in Phoenix. You know, my whole training block leading up to Tunnel Hill was basically heat training more or less. Um, and then, uh, yeah, uh, I've been, I'll go to, uh, uh, a, there's a, a guy in town here, Dr. Matt Colby, who does, he's a chiropractor, physical therapist. Um, and he does some like, so he works with some like professional MMA guys and stuff too. And uh, he'll do some like kind of like, different stretches, uh, just to kind of, um, work with hip mobility and things like that. So I've gone to him a few times leading into tunnel Hill as well. And I think that's something I'll probably continue to do, uh, going forward as well. You know, it's my contention that, you know, you know, when we talk about mobility and stuff like that, and that's been very popular over the last decade or so, a lot of people are really into that. And I think some of the restrictions and mobility we have are secondary to poor diet in my view do you find that uh changing the diet has 
maybe it improved that sort of uh, feature for you? Do you do you notice a difference with with diet? I mean, you've been low carb for so long that it may be too hard to tell. But you know, do you think there's anything to that? Because I I I I think there is. You know, it'd be nice to you know sort of study this more formally. But uh, that, that's my impression from from again talking with many people that that did notice less stiffness, less less, mm-hmm. less aches and pains, less need for you know warm up i know there's a lot of people that were to go work out i mean they have like a 45 minute ritual of of stretching it seems and i spend like they spend their whole time warming up and you know personally i don't i don't find i need to do that very much uh you know even at all sometimes and so i just wonder what your experience has been with regard to diet and and the the need for you know tremendous amounts of stretching Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you said, some of it is tough because I've been doing a high fat, low carb for over seven years now. So it's like changes within that framework would be, uh, are maybe a little harder to recognize. Um, one thing I did notice when I first switched to it though, was, or I guess there was more or less three things that kind of stuck out to me as reasons to address nutrition differently when I did go from high carb to high fat. And that was my sleep quality. Um, it was my energy consistency during the day. Like I didn't want these roller coasters where I felt really good for parts of the day and really low. Like I could take a nap in anywhere, just lay down and take a nap. Um, and then the other one was just after these big training sessions and things, just the amount of swelling I would notice in like my ankles and my legs and stuff like that. Um, which some of it is just a byproduct of, you know, doing an extreme sport, but um, to have it kind of linger around for, for long periods of time was not something I necessarily wanted. So, you know, those three things are all three things that, that cleared up for me, um, when I switched around my diet a little bit. So, you know, I get, I get the whole placebo argument and stuff like that, but I just, you know, regardless, uh, you know, I'm sleeping great at night. I'm, which might have something to do with swelling in my legs too. I mean, sleeping is when we're recovering. So I think if you can fix that, like that's probably going to bleed over into a lot of things. So if nutrition is helping you sleep better, then it's like, you just kind of keep following that, following that path back far enough and you get to nutrition. Um, so, uh, yeah, from, from like the mobility side of things, I think you're right. I think if I didn't run as much as I did, I don't think I would have this need to like do a whole lot of mobility type stuff. I think like if you just kind of create a good range of motion in your, your, your daily activity, um, you're probably gonna find yourself pretty mobile. I mean, I think, I think you said it in the past, it's like, you don't see animals out there doing yoga and stretches and stuff like that. And they're incredibly like supple and mobile. Like I think of my, our, our dog, um, she's, she's 10 years old now, so she's getting a little older, but like, you know, she doesn't, really do a whole lot of stretching <laughs> she just goes out and can sprint right out the gate and she's old so uh um you take a younger dog and it's even more apparent that like there's it seems like we're probably as humans doing something negative nutritionally or it's probably a combination of nutritionally like sitting in chairs and stuff like that that are creating maybe this need to do more mobility than we would have to if we kind of had those things kind of in check um but yeah i I think there's something to be said about just, uh, you know, keeping the diet, diet clean. And for me, that's, that's low carb. And during recovery, even some short bouts with like a carnivore setup where, you know, I feel like my legs don't swell as much as they used to. And I feel like I don't have that, that real weird rickety tightness for as long or at all, sometimes after ultra marathons. And I've, I've talked to Jeff Browning, who we had on the show for, I think it was episode 12. And his, his big aha moment was when he fir- he did a pretty strict ketogenic diet for like, I think it was four months leading into the Hurt 100, which is down in Hawaii. Um, and he ended up winning it that year. And he was so surprised after doing that where the next day he could do like an air squat and it wasn't like rigor morris in his legs. Like his legs were sore. I mean, he ran 100 miles a day before, but it wasn't this like swelling to the degree where his knees wouldn't even bend. Um, so that was a huge aha for him. And I mean, this was a guy who had run something in the neighborhood of 1600 milers before that on a high carb approach. So he knew very well what to expect after a hundred miler in the normal context that he had been operating under before. And by switching his diet up, um, like he was, he's noticed that. And, and I get that that's a, a single person. Um, but for me, it's like when you see 
see anecdotes like that, it's like you're left with a decision like, do I try that and see if it works for me? And I think if you keep an open mind and you do that, and if it does work for you, great, you found something, you just learned from someone else who uh, may, maybe did some trial and error that you don't have to do now. Uh, or if it doesn't work, you know, you can always go back. Yeah, I mean, we, we mentioned this one of our earliest shows we had, uh, but you, I know you were participating, I think, in a study that I think Jeff Volick was one of, the, one of the investigators on, and they looked at oxidative stress levels in different athletes coming off of endurance events and showing that the athletes that were participating in a low-carbohydrate arm had much less oxidative stress relative to the high-carb athletes. And so I think there's data in, in the literature that supports, you know, that some of this stuff is happening. And then again, we have to look into performance and it's more than just race day performance and, you know, what happens, how you're participating, partitioning fuel. Uh, you have to look at recovery. You have to look at, you know, a whole host of things. You like, you talk about sleep quality. You have to look at, you know, mood, mood, psych, you know, psychological factors. All those things are impacted by diet. And so we have to kind of step back and look at the big picture. Um, let me ask you um, about, you know, you've got the, uh, your season's coming to the end, but you just told me you're going to run, a, you're going to do a 24 hour deal. And yeah. that's, that's, you know, that's basically, you know, uh, twice as long as you just ran. And so that's, that's, to me, that's a pretty big difference in my view. But uh, tell me about how you're, how you're preparing for this one. And, you know, if anything much different than how you prepared for the hundred miler, and then what are your expectations and, and when is that going to take place? Yeah. So from when we're recording, it's going to be in a couple of days. It's uh, on, on Saturday, the second weekend in December. Um, so by the time this one goes live to everyone or goes, I guess, public to everyone, it'll, it'll be done and I'll hopefully still be alive. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a little different. Um, it's at an event I'm familiar with, the Desert Solstice Track Invitational. It's where I've targeted 100 miles um, on a few occasions, uh, most notably in 2013 and 2015. Um, but this time I'm going to go there with the mindset of staying out for the full 24 hours. Uh, and, and, you know, a basic timed event structure, it's, it is kind of what, what you'd imagine. You have 24 hours to see how far you can run. And however you parcel out that time towards moving, stopping to use the bathroom, you know, fueling and all that other stuff is, is up to you as the runner. Um, for me, the furthest I've run from a time standpoint to this date is 17 and a half hours. So that kind of presents me with a couple different like outlooks for one. I'm super intrigued in the sense that, uh, for someone like myself, who's done over, I think I've done over 50 ultra marathons. Now there's not as much nuance in it as there was in the past where usually when I go to an event, I have some background knowledge. I have something like that. I can say, okay, I've done this before. Now it's just building off of this. Whereas for 24 hours, you know, when I get to 17 and a half hours, um, you know, presumably the next, uh, the next, the next phase of that race is going to be all new, all nuanced where I'm learning new things, where I'm experiencing something I haven't before. Uh, so I'm trying to keep an open mind about that, where like, I'm, I'm def I'm, I'm planning for something I've never done before. Um, so from a fueling standpoint, I'm, I'm, I am leaning a lot on kind of what I've just noticed in other ultra marathons in training in just my day-to-day -day life. And when you kind of unpack it on paper, uh, you know, 24 hours is long enough. It's, you know, essentially twice as long as what it would take me to do a hundred miles in. Um, so that means I'm using different intensities. Uh, so I'm going down in intensity, which for me means I probably don't need to rely as much or at all on carbohydrate um, as a fuel source. And uh, we're getting into a duration too, where uh, taking in some exogenous fat during this race versus a shorter one where I would maybe avoid that because I'm going to rely mostly on body fat to bypass digestion might not be an issue as big of an issue because I'm going to be low, be going slow enough where I'm not really as concerned about my body having to digest stuff and moving at the pace that I'll be moving at for 24 hours. Um, so I'm, I'm, probably going to do a little more of a whole food approach compared to maybe last time. Uh, I haven't a hundred percent decided exactly what that will be. Uh, some of it's just because I'm going to, I'm going to bring a variety of options out there, I think, and then just see how I feel on the day. I, it, 
with, with, with these longer things, I think there's something, I think you, the way I usually break it down is I give myself a, a handful of options to pick from so that like when I get in the moment, I can kind of just listen to my body. And then, you know, at some point when you're out there at 19 hours and 20 hours, I expect like you're going to crave something and then you should probably just eat that as opposed to try to force something down that maybe you don't want. Um, and you know, that's probably a mental as much as a physiological thing, but uh, I'm probably going to do, uh, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to mix in some, something that I've done in the past, but not to a large degree, which is like kind of like a potato chip that's cooked in coconut oil. Um, just to kind of get the little more, a little more of that, uh, kind of fat source in with a little bit of carbohydrate. Um, but I think I'm going to fuel at a lower rate than I maybe would for a shorter, a shorter distance. Cause my intensities are low enough where I will be able to depend quite a bit on, um, body fat as well. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be kind of a learning experience in terms of goals. The world record for 24 hours is by this guy named Giannis Curis, who's considered the, uh, the guy in timed events. He's held basically every record in timed events up to from 12 hours up to six days at one point. Um, in his 24 hour, I think is fairly unarguably his best performance ever. He ran 188.8, I believe, miles, which comes out to be a, a shade under 7.30 pace per mile for 24 hours straight, which is uh, pretty mind-boggling. <laughs> I mean, to just think like, you know, he likely wasn't moving that entire time. So his actual moving pace was probably a bit faster than that. Um, and just the, the mental consistency that it takes to do that for 24 hours. The American record is a little it is a little softer compared to the world record. It's 172.5 miles, um, which I believe comes out to be about 812 pace um, per mile, which I think is a little more reachable for my first attempt. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm open to the experience and having a variety of things going, but I do think like that 170 mile target isn't something that that I'm afraid to target. I think that's very within reach if I have a good day. Uh, so if I can kind of keep things going past that 17 and a half hour mark, I think that I'll, I'll get up in that range. Uh, so that brings the American record into play, I think. So that's kind of, I guess, outside of just experiencing the 24 hour event for the first time, which kind of has to be the primary goal in my opinion, um, since I do want to do more of these down the road. Uh, I think uh, that secondary goal is kind of targeting that American record. And I, I am fairly fortunate that one of my good friends, Pat Reagan, who's um, a very good flat ultra marathon runner uh, is doing his 24 hour debut as well. So hopefully we can kind of work together and um, target this thing together and see if we can motivate each other to put up some big miles on, on, on the day. But uh, yeah, that's kind of how I'm looking at it. Well, it's going to be, I, I'll, I will eagerly watch for your results on that. Zach, let me, just one other th consideration. Uh, you know, there's probably going to be a pretty wide temperature variation, you know, considering you're running through the night. So, I mean, I imagine the mm -hmm. temperature may swing as much as 30 or 40 degrees or, or even more. Uh, how do you, how do you, how does that, how does that impact you while you're, while you're pre preparing for this? And do you consider, you know, obviously clothing is going to be a, a, a consideration, but is there, a fueling strategy for different temperatures as well or, or hydration strategy? Yeah. Um, you know, hydration, I tend to just rely on thirst. So I'll just listen to my body. If I'm thirsty, I'll ask for something. The cool thing as monotonous as a 400 meter loop is for 24 hours. Uh, the nice thing about it is, you know, I'll have a couple people out there who are just helping me essentially. So it's like they, they, you can make a strong argument that they have the, <laughs> the harder job. They're just sitting there watching me go around in loops. But, um, that, you know, if I need something, I ask for it. And I literally have it 400 meters later, which is, you know, typically two minutes, give or take. Uh, so I'll bring a variety of clothing options out. Cause like you said, right now it's been a little colder in Phoenix than it normally is. It's been getting down into the forties at night. Um, so I'm going to plan for that. If it gets down into the forties with no sun, I'll likely put on, you know, an extra layer of clothes, hat, some gloves, um, during the, heat of the day it'll be up into the 60s maybe even the 70s so during that point i'll kind of probably wear more more traditional clothing just shorts and like a singlet um but i'll have that stuff available um 
Yeah, I think uh, the other thing too is just like the temperature of fluids. Like typically I don't put too much thought into that. If anything, I'm trying to make them as cold as possible. Uh, but for this, it's like if it's 40 degrees, um, I might enter entertain some like bone broth or something like that if it's uh, beneficial to maybe get in some 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 sodium or electrolytes and stuff through that and also kind of warm up the core a little bit. So I'll have a variety of different things out there for to kind of see how things play out. But with this type of stuff, it's always better to, I think, be be prepared and then have some options that maybe you won't end up using. But it's better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. All right, Zach, I think that's some pretty insightful information that all these people that are out there wanting to PR their 100 mile time. I know when I do mine, I'm going to listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a crazy goofy sport, but um, you know, it's, it's kind of a fun to be a part of and it certainly generates some interesting questions. All right, Zach. Well, I think this is a good episode. Um, we'll just kind of leave it for your next record and hopefully, hopefully I can get off my button and get myself a record here pretty soon. I've been, <laughs> I've been yeah. slacking this year. I haven't broken any world records this year. So I've got, the year's not over yet. So I'm not holding <laughs> out still got a little bit more. Still got a another, New Year's Eve attempt maybe. <laughs> yeah. I still got a few more weeks. So I, I, hopefully I'll have one before then we can talk about, you know, talk about my, my well, performance. Hopefully. No, yeah. It would be cool to look at, um, the training, the training difference between uh, yeah. your your stuff and my stuff. Since sure. some different uh, different ends of the of yeah the, uh, of the endurance. <laughs> and I know I, it's interesting because I think of like when we first started the podcast too. It's like that was kind of the intriguing I think dynamic was that we both have a relatively similar um, approach nutritionally, and then we're operating on completely different ends of the spectrum from a from a performance goal orient. So it's kind of neat to see that and. Um, I'm sure we'll have some cool stuff on your end coming down at the end of the year or shortly thereafter. Yeah, I hope so. I better do. I'm going to my, get off my butt and do it. <laughs> All right, Zach, let's shut this one down. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.